Good evening. I need a couple of brothers who are servant leaders to volunteer and help pass out some handouts. <laughs> that was good. I like that. So we've got a couple of, got a couple of stacks here. So tonight we're really going to do a couple of things. Right here at the very beginning, and you don't need the handout for this, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the Institute, just what's what, so that you can be thinking about that and whether you want to participate in the Institute this fall or whether you just simply want to be a prayer partner for what we're doing. And, uh, and then after we spend a little bit of time introducing the Institute, we're actually going to talk about uh, a topic this evening. And I'll go ahead and tell you what the topic is going to be. Our topic is, what is theology and why does it matter? But we'll come to that in just a minute. I want to begin just by introducing you to the Institute. Some of you have heard some of this before. Some of you, you may be here going, what in the world is the Institute? I'm going to smile and nod and play along and hope that people don't realize I'm really a Methodist. And so what we want to do is just make sure that everybody knows kind of what's going on in the direction and, uh, and know kind of where it fits in at Taylor's First Baptist Church. So how many of you have heard of the Established Network? Heard of the Established Network? Established the church, right? This is kind of our... Uh, church-wide vision for discipleship and disciple-making from somebody becoming a part of the church to some of us being sent out from the church uh, to go and be a part of what God is doing in other places. And the Established Institute is part of the Established Network. The Institute is a discipleship ministry of Taylor's First Baptist Church that provides a biblically faithful Theological education for everyday Christians, normal people, not the nerds, not the people who go to Bible college, though that's a good thing, not the people who go to seminary, that's a good thing, but folks who just love Jesus and love the Word and want to dig a little bit deeper. That's really the vision that we have for the Established Institute. It's going to be anchored by a two-year program that meets on Wednesday nights that launches officially next Wednesday. Uh, Pastor Jeremy joked this is sort of like week zero, just to wet the whistle a little bit. But, uh, but we officially start next week. It's going to go over two different school years. That's going to be kind of the anchor of the Institute, that Wednesday night program. But we will also occasionally, periodically, have just one-off seminars on hot topics, if you will, uh, normally on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, did some of you come this past spring whenever we talked about the Scriptures? Some of you remember that? We talked about why we can trust the Bible. That's the sort of thing that we'll do from time to time that won't be part of that regular rhythm of Wednesday nights, but we'll just be a, hey, we're going to get together at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon and you can sign up and we'll be in here or wherever and it, you can invite your friends and uh, do things a little bit differently with that. 
The Established Institute, now most of you probably have the handout, uh, the Established Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His world for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. Now, some of you have heard me say that before. If you're a part of the Institute and what we're doing on Wednesday nights, you're going to hear me say it every week because repetition is our friend. And this is the, the mission of the Institute, and it's the working definition that I'm going to be using for theology throughout the Institute. Uh, it is thinking rightly about God and His world for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. We'll dig into that definition a little bit more in just a few minutes. The Established Institute has four emphases, each of which is going to inform the content on Wednesday nights, as well as those special sessions that we have from time to time on the weekends. Uh, Christian story, you may have seen the screen flashing a few minutes ago through the announcements and mentioned we're starting next Wednesday, 12 weeks on the Christian story. So Christian story, Christian belief, that's what we'll do this school year, Christian formation, growing in Christ, and Christian witness. What are all the different ways that we represent Christ out in the rest of the world? So over the next couple of years, those are going to be the themes. And, and each of those themes, there'll be a 12-week semester that digs into Christian story or that digs into Christian belief in the spring or that digs into Christian formation or that digs into Christian witness. And the idea, again, is helping us as a church to dig deeper, to go a little bit further than we go in life groups, but not to go so deep that you're saying, do I need to have a textbook? Are we going to get credit for this? Now, let me ask a question. This is a very Baptisty question, okay? So I'm talking to those of you who've been Baptist for a long time. How many of you remember Training Union? You remember Training Union? In some ways, this is our new and improved version of Training Union. And that's what we're doing. We're digging deeper into those sorts of topics, building on what we do with engaging with the Scriptures in life groups and, uh, and digging deeper into these topics. So... Last little bit by way of introduction, this fall the Institute is going to focus on the theme of Christian story. And here's what we're going to talk about over the 12 weeks. We're going to talk about how to rightly interpret the Bible. What do you do when you open up those pages? Or when you open up that screen if it's on your phone or on a tablet? How do we rightly read and understand and interpret the Bible? We're going to provide just a big picture overview of the Old and New Testaments. We're not going to go verse by verse through it. We don't have enough time to do that. But we're going to look at the, what is the story of the Old Testament? What is the story of the New Testament? What are the major hinge points, if you will, in the Old and the New Testament? How does it all hang together? That's going to be part of what we talk about. We're going to talk about what's the relationship between the Testaments. You know you've thought about it before. How do they relate to each other? We're going to talk about that. And then finally, we're going to end by talking a little bit about biblical theology. When I say biblical theology, I don't mean theology we get from the Bible, though we do get our theology from the Bible, 
or we ought to. What I mean is, what does it look like to trace a theme across the Scriptures? So think about a theme like the presence of God. How does the Bible develop the idea of God's presence with His people from Genesis to Revelation? Or let's use a Bible word. What about something like covenant or kingdom or redemption? What does it look like to look at those themes from the 30,000-foot view across the Scriptures? Not just what Paul says in, in that book and that chapter and that verse that I memorized as part of sword drill. That was another Baptist reference for some of you. You know, if you know, you know. But, uh, but how do we trace those themes across the Bible? So that's the sort of stuff that we're going to be talking about this fall. So here's the way to think about it. If you want to dig deeper into the Bible in particular, how to read it, what does it mean, how does it all hold together, what are the major themes, that's what we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights this fall. And then if you stick around for the spring, we're going to be doing basic Christian doctrine. You coming to get me? I'm going to let you come do it. This is the perfect time to do it. Thus concludes the introduction. I now turn it over to Pastor Jeremy. Oh, I'm so sorry. If it wasn't pouring rain, I wouldn't do this. But there is a van. It is a upstate co-op parent. 3656 is the number on the tag. If you know your number, I don't know my number. I don't. If you know yours, that's awesome. Um, but the door, sliding door, will not shut. They've tried to shut it for you. It just won't shut, and maybe it, it doesn't. <laughs> um, but it is pouring rain, and I just felt so bad for it to sit out there. So if you have a minivan, red. red. red minivan. Is it your? Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> I was like, how does she know this stuff? <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> So, anyone else? License plate. <laughs> so, uh, next you know. topic: prophecy. <laughs> it's awesome. So, thank you, Miss Duncan. Uh, so, yes. Um, so, it is red minivan three six five six Upstate Co-op. The sliding door will not shut, and they just they just felt bad that it's sitting out in the pouring rain. Thanks. That is a very important announcement for somebody in this building right now. Maybe not in this room but definitely in this building. Okay, that's the Institute. So tonight, week zero, if you will, for everybody, what is theology and why does it matter? So let me begin by asking a question. How many of you have ever heard somebody say something like this, even if it was not these exact words? I don't know about all that theology, just give me Jesus. You heard something like that before? I've heard that a lot over the years. Here's the problem with that sort of statement. What do we mean when we say Jesus? Do we mean the Jesus who had all kinds of pithy sayings about life and wisdom that are recorded in the Bible? Do we mean the Jesus of the Mormons who's the brother of Satan? Do we, do we mean the Jesus of the liberals who was a good teacher who set a moral example? Do we mean the Jesus of Islam who was simply a better prophet than Muhammad but definitely not the son of God? 
There's all kinds of things that we talk about all the time that we bring theological assumptions to. Even things like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. By the way, that's not true. Other people have known it. If you're the only people who know it, if you're the only one who knows it, you know what we call that? A cult. But we know what the song means, right? I mean, we, there's, there's theological ideas behind what we talk about. And so part of what I want to do tonight is to convince at least some of you that theology isn't as scary or daunting or academic as you might think it is. So, I've met lots of people who, uh, who were scared of theology, including more than a few people who were actually preparing for full-time ministry. And we find that attitude frequently out there in the world. And if you'll allow me, we often find it especially among Baptists or other Christians who actually take the Bible really seriously. And I don't know why that's the case, but, uh, but it's often the case that in churches that have the highest view of Scripture and the highest view of evangelism and the Great Commission, they're almost afraid that if we think too much about theology, we might break something or we might get too uppity or we might lose some of our urgency when it comes to gospel advance. But here's my argument tonight. Theology matters. It matters for you. It matters for your family. It matters for our church, and it matters for the world. There is no Christian faith without theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Every church is a community of theologians. So let's dig a little bit deeper and talk about what that means. So I'm going to give you a definition of theology, and you see it there in the handout if you have it in front of you. Theologians have come up with all kinds of useful technical definitions of theology, the sort of thing you find in a textbook. I'm going to share one with you. This is a definition from Millard Erickson, a Baptist theologian who's written a textbook that's widely used in seminaries and Bible colleges, and this is what he says. Theology is that discipline which strives to give a coherent statement of the doctrines of the Christian faith based primarily on the Scriptures, placed in the context of culture in general, worded in a contemporary idiom, a way that we understand, and related to issues of life. Now, I think that sort of definition, and there's a lot of other ones that are similar, that's how one theologian defines it, I think those sort of definitions are helpful, but I think they're especially helpful for pastors and other teachers in the church. I'm not sure how helpful they are for normal Christians, people who just love the Lord and love their church and love lost people. It's just a little bit too technical. Also, these sorts of definitions, and I don't think Dr. Erickson intends this, but it 
can unintentionally divorce belief from behavior. Almost like theology is only about getting all the facts right. And again, I don't think that's what he's trying to do. In fact, I'm positive it's not what he's trying to do. But when we get a little too textbooky, sometimes that happens. And when we look to the scriptures, you know what we see? What we think and how we live are closely connected. Belief and behavior are tight, aren't they? We're not just hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. And that's the reason that I define theology and that the, the mission of the Established Institute is about thinking rightly about God and His world for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. That's what theology really is at its heart. And you, again, hear that definition echoed in our mission statement for the Institute. Theology is about how to think about God and all the other stuff in light of God. And whenever we think about God and all the other stuff in light of God, what's the takeaway? How are we changed? How do we grow? That's really what we're getting at when we're talking about theology. So that definition that I just gave you about thinking rightly about God, that weaves together the theoretical and the practical. It puts together the root and the fruit. It gives us the foundation and the structure. Because we don't want to just learn stuff about God. We want what we learn to make us more like Christ. We want to be conformed increasingly to Jesus and His character. We want to care about the things He cares about. We want to do the things He commands us to do. We want to love one another and love lost people more because of what we've learned about God and everything else in light of God. Theology is about discipleship. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, whenever we think about what theology really is, is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's there in the handout for you. And this is what it says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this verse, Paul teaches us that God is at work in our lives to wean us off of worldly thinking. Because that's our default, isn't it? Our default is to be squeezed into the pattern of the world around us. But God's at work in our lives. And He is transforming us, renewing us, so that our minds... Our thinking, so that our priorities, the things that we want to do, so that our affections, the things that we love, so that all of that is directed Godward because it's never naturally directed Godward. 
Our compass does not naturally point to true north, does it? Our compass turns inward. Our compass chases after the wrong things. It's when through a transforming work of the Holy Spirit, we are made new and our minds begin to transform that we begin to become who God created us to be and who he saved us to be. So theology, thinking rightly about God and his world, is really about spurring us on in spiritual maturity, helping us to more faithfully live out the great commandment to love God and to love neighbor, to more faithfully obey the great commission to make disciples of people here, there, and everywhere. Sound doctrine, right thinking about God and his world is a means of grace in our lives that the Holy Spirit uses not to save us, not to save us, but to grow us, to mature us, to help us pursue Christ more faithfully as we think rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. I love this quote from a, uh, from a theologian. Theology is a spiritual discipline, and God uses it to bring our entire lives, not just our minds, our entire lives into conformity with his being and his plan for us. So why does it matter? And we're previewing that now, but why does theology matter? Because lots of Christians think it doesn't matter. Now, I cited a minute ago with theology mattering, the whole idea, I don't need theology, just give me Jesus. But let me take the other position for just a minute. Theology divides the body of Christ. That happens sometimes. How many of you know somebody who loves Jesus more than you, but they're in another type of church that you think is wrong about something? Do you have any friends like that? Let me tell you something. I have friends who are wrong about baptism that are godlier than I am. I have some friends who are wrong about whether or not a true believer can lose her salvation who in other ways are further along in their walk with Christ than I am. I have friends who think God has given them the gift of speaking in languages they've never learned. And I don't think Scripture teaches that the same way they do, and yet I am amazed by those friends' love for the lost and the hurting. Our theological convictions divide true Christians from each other who have honest disagreements about things that sometimes Christians have been debating for 2,000 years. Sometimes doctrine, another reason, sometimes it's it just seems so theoretical. Now, folks, I have a PhD in theological studies. I have written works on theology. And you know what? Some of that stuff that's out there, we don't need to know it. We don't need to know it. 
Somebody wrote that because they had to do that to get their doctorate or to get tenure or to get a job at a different place that's better than the place that they are. And nobody needs to know that. Nobody needs to know that. Sometimes it's, it's just not that useful. And all that I've been saying is assuming kind of like sound doctrine, but another reason sometimes we get turned off to it is because there's bad doctrine that's out there. I don't mean sincere Christians being wrong about a debatable matter like who we ought to baptize. Like that's a wrong doctrine, but nobody, I don't think, nobody is going to spend eternity separated from the God who created them because they think that we should sprinkle covenant children instead of baptize believers. I think they're really wrong about that. But that's not the same thing as the sort of belief that prevents somebody from having a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, right? But there are some doctrines that do. There are theologians teaching at prestigious schools or serving in uh, very well-respected pulpits in the community who believe that uh, Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, but that uh, his beliefs continued to live on in the lives of his followers, and that's what resurrection means. There are theologians who believe that we're all really born good, and the only bad people in this world are like the Hitlers of this world. There are theologians who believe that Jesus was really just a man, a man who we should emulate his life, but he wasn't the son of God. God was just uniquely at work in his life. There are theologians who say, don't talk to me about the blood. That sounds so barbaric and primitive. We've advanced beyond that. There's bad doctrine out there too. And some of us, and I say us because I am one of us in this case, some of us have at times in our lives been in churches that teach bad doctrine, that lead people astray, not just being wrong about something that sincere godly Christians disagree with, but doctrine that actually leads people astray. So there's... Lots of reasons that people are, even, even sometimes virtuous reasons that people are nervous about talking about theology. Theology can be studied, written about, debated in unhealthy ways. But it still matters. And we ought to care about sound doctrine. We ought not to let these potential potholes keep us from driving down the road. Listen, we live in South Carolina. Do we let potholes keep us from driving down the road? <laughs> Does anybody stay home because of those potholes? No, because we would never leave our houses. It's one of my biggest adjustments to come into South Carolina, the potholes. We don't not drive because of the potholes. So we can't let the potholes, the theological potholes, keep us from caring about the value of sound doctrine. There's at least three reasons that theology really does matter. It's important because correct doctrinal beliefs are essential to the relationship between the believer and God. 
Folks, if you're not thinking rightly about God, you might not have a relationship with the person you think you do. If you don't know what happened at the cross and what that means for you, you might be religious, but you might not be a Christian. We, we don't have to have doctoral degrees in theology, but there's some things we have to understand about God, man, Christ, and response if we're going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and learn about all the other stuff, right? So some sound doctrine is necessary for that. Number two, theology is necessary because truth and experience are related. They are related. Right thinking leads to right acting. Wrong thinking leads to wrong acting. We don't want to live disordered, incoherent lives, right? Truth and experience are related to each other. Number three, theology is needful because of the large number of alternatives and challenges to a right understanding of God. There was a time not too long ago where you could be just about anywhere in Greenville County, and if you met an atheist, the God who she did not believe in was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the father of Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? She was denying the Christian God. You go downtown now and you meet an atheist. He's not denying the Christian God. He's denying the idea that there is a divine completely. We live in an increasingly post-Christian world. Our nation and our culture is slowly forgetting what we once all took for granted. That there is a God. That we're accountable to Him in some way. That there are norms about morality that are woven into the fabric of the universe and that laws ought to be based upon those norms and that the Bible is a very important book and that Jesus was probably God in some sense and at the very least ought to be respected. And I'm not, I'm not using Christian language. You hear that, right? I'm just using kind of like very generic Judeo-Christian language that doesn't get everybody saved but that echoes what Scripture teaches about God and the world, and that used to be the default factory setting. But friends, it is not anymore. That's increasingly a bubble. There are all kinds of rival ideas about God and man and sin and Christ that are out there now. And I don't just mean cults and other religions. I mean atheism and agnosticism and every other type of ism that the person who holds to it says that's not a religion, but it is because they're worshiping something instead of the God of all creation. We can't talk to our unbelieving neighbors and co-workers and family members if we don't understand something about theology. Because they don't have sometimes even the categories. to. We've got to convince them that they are lost before we can convince them they need to be saved. We have to convince them that there is a God before we can convince them that they're in some way accountable to that God. We have to convince them that He's the Creator before we can convince them that He is the Redeemer. I'm not saying that we have to make them into theologians before they're Christians, but... They have to have some basic categories or they don't know what we're asking them to do. 
whenever we start talking about the gospel. So theology matters because there's so much wrong thinking about God and his world that we have to help people to think rightly about God and his world so that they can live rightly before God in his world. Here's the point. We can't know God without knowing some things about God. Now, intellectual knowledge is not enough. What does James 2.19 say? Anybody remember? Who believes but doesn't really believe? The demons. They believe, but they tremble because they don't really believe. Intellectual knowledge isn't enough, but we can't have authentic relational knowledge of God without some intellectual knowledge of God. We have to know certain things about God and the world. And again, this is especially true in a culture that has so many bad ideas about God and about creation and about what it means to be human and about sin and righteousness, about the future, about justice and injustice. So much wrong thinking. How do we bring the scriptures to bear on these questions? When we do that, we're doing theology. Theology gives us the language to describe the way things really are. To help people understand what's really what what. What's what. Whether the light bulbs go off immediately or whether we are just one step in a long line of sowing seeds in people's lives. Theology calls balls and strikes. It tells people the way things really are and what they're really meant to be. So to kind of come back to my opening comments, every Christian is a theologian. In fact, every human being is a theologian. Even atheists are theologians. They're just bad theologians. Because everybody on this planet who is cognitively able is trying to figure out the answer to life's ultimate questions, aren't they? They're trying to figure out how we got here and why it matters. Does my life have meaning? Is there anything after this? Or when I close my eyes for the last time as it lights out for all eternity? Everybody is asking those questions. There are some questions we can't help but ask because there are some things we can't not know. Everybody is wrestling with life's ultimate questions. So the real question isn't, are we theologians or not? The question is, are we good theologians or are we bad theologians? The good, the bad, or the ugly? Right, that's the question when we're talking about theology. Are we thinking God's thoughts after him and living in a way that pleases him? That's the goal of theology. Because theology is thinking rightly about God and his world for the sake of living rightly before God in his world. So where does it come from? What are the sources of theology? Let me give you two. 
also on the handout. Ever since the time of the Reformation, have you heard of the Reformation before? Does that sound familiar? All right, I see some nods. Ever since the Protestant Reformation, Baptists and many others have argued that Scripture alone is our ultimate authority for faith and practice. It is the one norm that trumps every other norm. It is the one place that we can look for fully trustworthy and authoritative answers. Does that make sense? That includes theology. So let me say it this way. If it ain't biblical, it ain't true, no matter how insightful it might be. And we need to say that. If it ain't biblical, it ain't true when it comes to theology or anything else. So I want you to think about it this way. The Bible is our supreme source for theology. The first and most important place we look to figure out sound doctrine, how to think rightly about God and His world. But while Scripture is our ultimate source of theology, it's not our only source of theology. There is a second source of theology, and that's tradition. I know the personnel committee is going to convene after this. We hired a Catholic. What are we going to do? Now listen, unlike our Roman Catholic friends, we do not believe that scripture and authority that scripture and tradition are equally authoritative like god speaks bilingual and language 1 is the bible and language 2 is tradition and they're they're both kind of held up there that is not what we believe scripture is our supreme authority the buck stops with the bible but tradition is an important secondary source of theology because it often helps us to understand the Bible. And we need to admit that. There's humility in admitting that we've learned from those who've gone before us. And that's what tradition is. Good tradition is the collected wisdom of those who've gone before us in between the time of the Bible and the day before yesterday. So if the Bible is our supreme authority, I want you to think about it this way. Tradition is our servant authority. Because tradition serves our interpretation of the Bible and our application of the Bible. And some of the most useful servant sources that are out there that are below the Scripture but helpful for understanding the Scripture are things like historic creeds the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Things like confessions of faith. Our church has a confession of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Some of you are from other churches, uh, other church traditions that may have been in your background and you may be familiar with other confessions of faith. You know one of my favorite traditional sources? Hymns. So much rich theology in hymns. Now listen, there's some bad theology in some hymns too. But the best hymns teach us good theology. Sermons. 
Sermons are a form of tradition, especially sermons that are older than the most recent sermon series. That's part of the best, if it's a good preacher, that's the best of Christian thinking about the scriptures or the writings of theologians. And I don't mean the technical writings of theologians. It might apply to that. But I mean some of the books that you might go to the Christian bookstore and buy that book and learn more about God and His world. That's, that's part of the tradition. So again, when we're talking about tradition, don't think Brother Nathan is a closet Catholic because he's not. I'm just reminding us that God has given us many secondary authorities that serve us as we try to understand the Scriptures. How many of you have ever read a book that you walked away and say, wow, I learned so much about the Bible from that book, and it wasn't the Bible? Have you ever done that? Guess what? You have engaged with the tradition. And in a servant way, it has helped you to understand the supreme authority which is the Bible. But again, just so I'm crystal clear, and just so there is not a revolt of the deacons and a called meeting of the personnel committee or a text from Pastor Josh that says, Brother, can we talk? <laughs> Tradition is only a useful source to the degree that it affirms, clarifies, and reinforces a right understanding of Scripture. It's a servant to the supreme authority, not a second standalone authority. So let's talk briefly about theological triage. Now this comes from Dr. Al Mohler. Some of you know that name, the president of Southern Seminary. He's the first one who used this particular term. Uh, many of you, you know what a triage nurse is, right? You go to the hospital, you've got three people. You've got somebody with a gunshot wound, somebody who says, I think I'm having a baby, and a third person who says, I have this rash and I don't know what it is. And the triage nurse has to decide in what order do these people get treated. So we're used to triaging. How do we triage theology? We're talking about theological triage. And Dr. Moeller says, and I think he's right about this, that we, we, when we talk about doctrine, when we talk about theology, we need to mentally have three different categories in our head because that's going to help us navigate these questions. Some doctrines are first order or, or primary doctrines, and those are beliefs that are central to the Christian faith. If you deny these, reject them, redefine them, then you end up with something different than Christianity, even if you still use Christian lingo and you still go to church. You end up with a different dictionary, even if you have the same vocabulary. So what are those foundational doctrines? Things like God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Things like the inspiration of Scripture. Jesus being fully divine and fully human. All of us being sinners. Salvation through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This is what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. If you don't believe this stuff, 
you're not a Christian, even if in some sense you're very religious. Here's another way to think about it. To err, E-R-R, I'm from the South, so it sounds like A-I-R, but to err, E-R-R, to err in a first order doctrine is to become a heretic. To embrace doctrine that's so off base you're not really a Christian. Second category, second order or secondary doctrines, these are those beliefs that are debated by Christians, fellow Christians, to such a degree that it's difficult for two believers who have different views to be a part of the same church or the group of churches. So here we're talking about things like biblical inerrancy, differing views about baptism and the Lord's Supper, differing views about church leadership and church structure, differing ideas about miraculous spiritual gifts, or eternal security, or whether or not women should be ordained as pastors. Here's another way to think about it. These are the sort of things that separate denominations. These are the sort of things that cause you to visit a church and say, you know what, these seems like really nice people, but they're not me, or I'm not them. When we mess up with second-order doctrines, we might be wrong but we can't be so, in fact, we might be wrong enough that it hinders our spiritual maturity. But we're not so wrong we're not Christian just because we hold to those beliefs. Does that make sense? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying everybody's right or it doesn't matter. All these matter. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong, but being wrong doesn't make you not a Christian. That's what we're talking about with those second order doctrines. And then finally, there are third order or tertiary doctrines. These are the sort of beliefs that are widely debated by Christians in your life group. These are the things that you can have disagreements and still end up most of the time in the same church or in the same denomination. So let me just give you a few examples, some of which are definitely intended to make you squirm the finer details of original sin. How, how is our sin connected to Adam's sin? The millennium and the rapture. Predestination. Can Christians drink alcohol if they don't get drunk? How old is the earth? Spiritual gifts that aren't miraculous. Some of you have had lively debates about some of these issues with other members of this church. And none of them are unimportant. But they're not as important as the inerrancy of Scripture or baptism, which isn't as important as my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do you see the point? So... Those sort of third-order doctrines, again, they're genuinely important, but they rarely impact your spiritual maturity. There aren't many people who love Jesus more or less based upon their view of the rapture. Or people who love Jesus more or less based upon their view of, uh, oh, I don't know, 
I'm not going to keep naming stuff because I don't want people to come up to me afterwards and say, how dare you? But you know what I mean? Some of you are like, that's not a third order issue. That's a primary. But seriously. And I've heard this said before. I've heard this said before. The problem with liberals is that they think everything is a third order doctrine. The problem with capital F fundamentalists is they think everything's a primary doctrine. And so having this sort of thing in mind, it helps us, right? Now, now here's the deal. Some of you really are saying, Brother Nathan, I think that issue is more important than you do. And some of you are saying, Brother Nathan, I don't think that issue is as important. I think I would say that's lower down. And to some degree, that's okay. What matters is not that we put everything in the same buckets after we get past that first order. What matters is that we have buckets, and that we understand that every doctrine is not of equal importance to the Christian life, even though they all matter. Does that make sense? And whenever we come into those theological discussions, well, family discussions about various things, when we understand how important or how somewhat less important a doctrine might be, it helps us to know what's really worth contending for. And when do we need to bring the temperature down a couple of notches? And just say, well, I think you're wrong about that. It's okay to do that as long as we're not doing that about really important stuff. And man, there's some things worth fighting for. But I'm not fighting with anybody here over the rapture. It's just not going to happen. Well, maybe Brother Jeremy, but that would be for sport. <laughs> not for anything else. So again... All theology matters, and somebody is right and wrong about every one of those things that I mentioned. I am not implying it doesn't matter. But what I am saying is we live in a fallen world, and even people who love Jesus and have their Bibles open and have calluses on their knees because of their time in prayer still debate some of these things. And we'll continue to debate some of these things. So let's not make mountains out of molehills or pretend that everything is just a molehill. Let's, uh, let's champion what's worth championing and let's have uh, loving debates about what's worth having loving debates and sometimes let's just say whatever, brother, whenever it's maybe not worth too much of our time. So here's how I want to close. How should we study theology? Because some of us are going to do this for the next couple of years in the Institute or, or maybe for portions of the next couple of years. And so what should our posture be? whenever we're thinking about theology. I get this from Wayne Grudem, another theologian who's written a popular textbook. He gives us six guidelines. It says, number one, we should study theology prayerfully. We should pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible would help us to rightly understand the Bible and apply the Bible and put all of it together whenever we're thinking about what the Bible teaches. Let's not be so prideful that we don't say, Lord, help me as I think through this. Speaking of pride, number two, we should study theology with humility. While we can think rightly about God and His world, nobody yet who is not the eternal Son of God, has thought fully comprehensively about God and His world. There are some things we just don't know. 
even if your last name is something like Luther or Calvin or Edwards or Augustine. That was not his last name. But you know, even if you got one of those names, there's just some things we don't know. Deuteronomy 29.29, I want you to remember this when we're talking about theology. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And there's some things we just don't know. And there's some things that we may just not be able to fully articulate. We need to remain teachable. But teachable as the scriptures teach us. Not teachable when it comes to every wind of doctrine that's blowing out there in the air. Number three, we should study theology with reason. God has given us reason as a gift. He has given us the ability to think through these things logically. And I want you to listen closely to this, okay? An idea that is logically coherent is not automatically true just because it's logically coherent. But an idea that is logically incoherent can't be true. Does that make sense? Just because it's logically coherent doesn't guarantee it's true. But if it ain't logically coherent, it's not true. Reason matters. If we can't fit a doctrine with all the other doctrines, it's not true. It's got to be coherent. It's got to hold together. It's got to be that way. Number four. We should study theology with help from others. Studying theology like every aspect of the Christian life is intended to be a community project. We ought to study theology together. We ought to study theology with the help of the best of the Christian tradition, the communion of saints. We ought to study theology with Advice from wise pastors and other teachers. We ought to study theology with Christians who are just a little bit further along than we are in our spiritual walk, who speak truth into our lives. God's not calling any of us to be lone ranger theologians. That's how cults get started. He's calling, he's calling us to study these things together, to sharpen each other, to be open to how the Holy Spirit's working through the brother or sister around us. Number five, this is very practical. We should study theology by examining all of the relevant passages of Scripture related to whatever doctrine we're considering. Bible-driven theology. That's what we're going for. We don't change the Bible to suit our theological systems. We revise our systems constantly so that they're conforming to what the Bible says. Scripture trumps system every time. Or we are unintentionally making idols out of our systems. We must always be learning from the Scriptures and be open to seeing something that for whatever reason we've not seen before. God has yet more light to show us from the scriptures. And different Christians at different times in history and different places see things a little bit differently because the types of questions we ask when we come to the Bible are 
affected by our context. So let's be open to what the Holy Spirit's teaching us. And finally, number six, we should study theology with rejoicing and praise. Learning about God and His world and how to think rightly about God and His world is an act of worship. I love this phrase. The ancient theologians had a Latin motto. Some of you have heard this before. Lex orandi, lex credenda. Translated into English, it means something like this. The law of worship is the law of believing. Thinking rightly about God leads us to greater worship of God. Thinking rightly about God's world causes us to rejoice in the one who created and sustains that world. So whether you're going to join us for the Institute, whether you're going to pop in from time to time, or whether you say, you know what, I don't think that's for me. I'm just going to be there in the pastor's Bible study and, and at church on Sunday mornings and in life group. As you learn from the scriptures, do it like this. Open-handed. Obedient to whatever the Lord is teaching you as an act of worship. Seeking to glorify Him with your mind for the sake of glorifying Him in everything that you do. Theology matters for all of us. So if you want to know more, come join us in the adventure called the Established Institute next week, same bat time, same bat channel, but different bat cave upstairs. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you that you've put it into the hearts of your people to seek to think rightly about you and your world for the sake of living rightly before you in your world. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to do just that in the coming weeks, in the coming years. We pray that we would be a church that is filled with sound theologians, not so that we can learn things about God that we didn't know before, that we want to do that, but so that we can more faithfully live out the great commandment and obey the great commission for our good, for your glory, for the health of this church, and for the sake of the world that you so love. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.